no one really understands how that feels unless you do have the weight of 80,000 years of culture on your shoulders and um, taking that with you and making sure that, you know, there's been a lot of robust conversations around cultural protocols and who can speak for who. And um, I think from a, a westernized sense, there's a lot of, you know, people can see me as someone who has, um, I guess, a, a social media platform and then automatically place this, I guess, idea or label of an authority on me, which in a cultural sense is not not um, not how it works. And I think it also comes down to the fact that I'm quite palatable. Um, I think my work is quite, you know, visually appealing and the way that I communicate is... Um, I guess engaging for some people but that doesn't necessarily make me the person to speak on all issues and I think that pressure has really um, has really played on my mind a lot um, throughout this year and I, I think that's something that I still need to get better at. I'm Alison Rice and welcome to Offline the Podcast. These are honest conversations about true self with the people behind the Instagram accounts and the teachers who help us on our way. A lot has changed since I launched Offline in September 2018. It started as a podcast, and thanks to your ongoing support, it turned into a bit of a movement. Today, Offline exists to help us explore the essence of who we are and how to live, create, and succeed in alignment with that. This is our true self. There's the podcast, a series of considered online courses I've created with our collective needs in mind, and experiences that allow us to connect as a community. Visit getoffline.co to find out more, or follow getoffline.co on Instagram. You can find me at Alison Larson Rice. I hope this episode helps you on your way. My next guest is someone that inspires me to create, not in spite of my experiences, but because of them. Rachel Sara is a proud Gorangarang woman from the Bundaberg area. A contemporary Aboriginal artist and designer, you might be more familiar with her Instagram handle, which is not to be mistaken for her first name. It's at Sara. In her words, Her work is an extension of her being and experiences. She uses art as a powerful tool in storytelling to educate and share Aboriginal culture and its evolution, often challenging the themes of society's perception of what Aboriginal art and identity is. In many ways, I think this episode stands for both the beauty and complexity that comes with the commercialization of art and broadly creativity. And what I learned from Rachel, the deeply nuanced responsibility and pressure that comes with being a young Aboriginal artist with a growing Instagram following. I hope you learn as much as I did from our honest conversation. I'm very grateful to Rachel for taking the time out of her day to teach us. It's a truly beautiful chat. She opens up about the relationship between energy, inspiration, and emotion when it comes to creating, the good and the bad of using Instagram to grow a conscious business, the importance of pulling out of jobs that become unaligned, 
why cultural protocols will always come before creation, overcoming fears about how she might be perceived, and why her ancestors aren't just part of her spirituality, they are her spirituality. She also shares her personal experience with land ownership, online dating in 2020 and beyond, and gives some really sound advice to young creatives who are trying to establish themselves in an era that's increasingly governed by comparison. Here's the wonderful Rachel and I for Offline. So we're going to have a beautiful conversation about you and your work as an artist and designer, but I like to start at the beginning. Um, So I wondered if you could share with us a little bit about your childhood and I guess what stands out for you the most. Yeah, I guess so for me as a, you know, a proud growing, growing woman from the Bundaberg area, um, it's a kind of a weird concept to culturally connect to somewhere but never live or grow up on country so I've always lived in Ipswich my whole life growing up here like I just really love how it's kind of not too city but also you know not too country but you know it's a weird connection knowing I connect back somewhere else and being quite distant from that area Um, so that was a Um, I guess a huge thing for me to grapple with younger when I was younger Um, you know being Aboriginal 28 years ago is a different time to being Aboriginal now um, even even then so I feel like growing up I really didn't know who I was Um, so even growing up now there's still moments where I'm figuring out who I am um, and I guess that's where art and design came into it. It was kind of a place for me to belong somewhere. That's really beautiful. I can't wait to speak about your work. <laughs> um, one question I had before we get into that was you studied visual communication and design at mm-hmm. Queensland College of Art in Brisbane. Mm-hmm. I wondered as an, like a, I guess a practising artist today, how important do you think the traditional study was to helping you find your unique expression or was yeah. that kind of in you already? Um, that's a interesting one. I feel like reflecting on uni, I hardly ever went to uni, to be honest. I lost so many attendance marks because I just didn't go. <laughs> um, I feel like it depends on what type of personality you have. Like a lot of people really strive on that like structured learning. Um, for me, it was great in that I learned some tools, but I reflect on uni and like I'm grateful for it. But I think What's powerful about my work is how I portray my experiences through my work. So looking back on my life, I didn't have a whole lot of experiences within a, a uni setting, I guess. So it's more, you know, the life lessons that you learn along the way, the interactions every day. So I think for some people it's very important and, you know, I am grateful for that, but I think more so for me it's you know my work as an extension of my experiences so the the more I'm in the trenches with my personal life I guess the more my art's striving so 
or thriving, I should say. Yeah. I actually, that was my next question for you, is that you describe your work as an extension of your being and your experiences. And can we talk a little bit more about what that means? Mm. So you're essentially saying that the more kind of nuanced your personal life is and your own introspection, yeah, the deeper and richer your work. So I guess in a lot of ways, you have to be in your stuff a lot of the time. So there's no kind of escaping that internal landscape. Is that right? Yeah. Um, there's no escaping the internal landscape for sure and I think what a lot of people don't understand is how much added pressure there is for Aboriginal people. Um, for me, I'm not only, you know, accountable for myself but I'm accountable for a community of people and, you know, making sure that I'm doing good by my own, I guess, ways but also cultural ways as well. But, yeah, I feel like for when I say an extension of my experiences – it's really kind of you have to be quite vulnerable, right? Like there's times where I can feel my mental health slipping and it's kind of those moments where I turn more to my art as a creative tool to, I guess, reflect on what I'm feeling. I've never been the type of person to really, you know, express myself through words too much. It's something that I've kind of grown into um, and particularly when, you know, you're in a commercial space, you need to attach stories to your work rather than just feeling. So I've kind of grown into this idea of expressing myself through work. But really early on, it was just, you know, a way to process what I was going through. And um, it was a way for me to not feel alone and for me to kind of put something um, down on paper visually that you know, people couldn't take away from me. I think that's the one thing that we see now is, you know, everything's a commodity and, yes, I do sell my work, but at the same time um, it's really personal to me. So I feel like the benefit of doing what I do is it allows other people to kind of see themselves reflected in my journey in their own personal way. So they kind of buy into the emotion and the story and the vulnerability in an authentic way. And I think that's what's so powerful about my work. Mm. It wasn't a question that I had on my list, but as I've followed you, I have observed there's a tendency for especially non-Indigenous people to copy your work And so because it's so personal, I wondered maybe if we could explore that a little bit, like how does that feel to have something so personal Mm. um, sold in a way? Yeah. Copied and sold. I mean, I'm sure I'm not the first creative to kind of experience this and I won't be the last. And, you know, for me it's I can get past it being, I guess, um, just straight up creative uh, copying. Um, I think I always comment on this idea of whether it's inspiration, copying or appropriation. And, you know, where it really makes my heart sink is this idea of cultural appropriation. And um, because I think for so long we've denied history's um, lessons around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, it's become more normal for it to continue in different avenues. And I think now when we're seeing a resurgence or I guess this elevation amplification of Aboriginal voices, um, there's this desire to kind of create work that has as much meaning as what our work does. But um, 
I think a lot of people kind of just see it from a visual perspective and want to kind of be inspired by it. Um, So, I mean, I'm definitely not an authority on cultural appropriation. For me, it's just about my work and um, I guess the way that I feel when someone copies or is very similar. But, you know, this sort of stuff has been happening for a long time across different aspects of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture. So, yeah, I think it just comes back down to the fact that in general, I feel like Australia is probably lacking in creative copyright law. I think it's very difficult to kind of navigate that in a sense. But I also feel like it comes back to this idea that, you know, as Australians, we're still, you know, unlearning history and relearning it. So I don't think all of us really understand the significance of the culture that's over 80,000 years old. Yeah, I would agree with that totally. And how do you approach those situations? Is this like something where you engage a lawyer as a creative and an artist or do you just contact directly? Um, Well, I feel like this... The systems that are in place I feel like are an attempt to just take a lot of money from artists. I think it's a risk that, you know, you need to you need to think a lot about. And I, I follow artists who have gone down that legal route and, you know, it's ended up being just um, a worse situation than what it started. So I always try to kind of reach out. You know, I want to give people the benefit of the doubt. I'm not someone who's um, aggressive in nature um, and, you know, I just I want to be open to using it as an opportunity to not only call someone out on appropriation but also guide them and kind of shift them in a different direction on their, I guess, learning journey. Um, so, I personally haven't reached out to lawyers um, for any kind of, I guess, breaches only because it is kind of an emotionally labouring experience to begin with and I think for me um, I don't think I can fight that battle on my own and I think when I can't navigate the copyright laws in Australia enough I feel like there's not much point in really following up things, if that makes sense. Yeah, I guess it's like questioning, is it the best use of your energy and your attention and your time? And perhaps that's the beautiful thing about platforms like Instagram, as difficult and complex as they can be, is it gives you somewhere that you can actually communicate what's going on so we become more aware as consumers yeah yeah definitely and I think that's probably you know we've seen over this year the power of the people through social media for um good and I think you know it's it's difficult for me to kind of have a one-on-one conversation privately when I know it happens so often so I kind of use the opportunity and use my platform to I guess appeal to the masses and by masses I mean you know my 30,000 followers but um, I feel like it's it's just this way to you know work smarter not harder in the sense that I can I guess engage with more people um, through Instagram rather than you know one-on-one but I definitely do reach out personally before anything. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit about your creative process? Yeah. <laughs> as much as you're willing to share. I wondered how you prepare mentally and emotionally to create. Like we all have, 
I'm obviously working in a very different medium to you, but there is a state of being that I need to be in when I'm sort of editing and and putting things together. What does that look like for you? Um, I think it varies. Um, I'm not a morning person, so I get this like surge of energy at night to kind of create, which is, you know, problematic for my sleep patterns. But I kind of, (laughs) I'm kind of open to just, I guess now that I have um, the benefit of working for myself, I'm open to just going where my energy leads me. Um, I think that's an important thing for me. It's not trying to force something from an empty cup and it's just about working in with my energy, my inspiration, my emotions. You know, I, I mentioned that, you know, I often have to sit with my emotions and my vulnerability, but sometimes it's it's past that point of creating and, you know, you just need to take a step back. But other times that's, you know, prime time to create work. So it, I guess it varies from time to time. And then can we talk a little bit about, you just said now that you're in a position where you're working for yourself. What did that journey look like for you? How long were you creating until you could call it a full-time profession? So I guess it started as a bit of a hobby to begin with. And, you know, working as an Aboriginal artist in a commercial space, um, it can be quite difficult to navigate. Um, I feel like it's, it's tough looking back because I felt like I wasn't 100% myself in that environment. I felt like I had to be someone who I wasn't. I almost had to be a tool in that sense, just like I would be um, using Illustrator or InDesign. I felt like I kind of needed to be quite robotic in, you know, what I was doing. It needed to fit kind of brand guidelines in that aspect. And so... I guess my personal work and my personal art practice stemmed from this escape from that commercial world. It was the sense that I would come home and, you know, process those emotions and those feelings by, you know, creating works that really resonated with me that, you know, I could create and not have feedback on. Um, And so I guess from that moment I started you know, sharing those on social media, I started kind of um, letting people behind the scenes of my work and my emotions. I think sometimes people were less interested, you know, in the visual aspect and more, I guess, the emotion behind it. Um, And so after a while, that kind of gained a lot of momentum. People started to, like I mentioned earlier, see themselves reflected in my journeys. And, you know, my, my, work became this visual aid or this um, inspiration in the sense that, or motivation, I should say, that, um, you know, we are more than, I guess, the environments that we're we're in Um, and to kind of separate yourself a little bit and to kind of invest in yourself. Um, And so as more and more people kind of liked my work and shared my work and my social media platform grew, there was kind of more of a need for me to create work um, from my own personal brand rather than the brand I was in commercially. And it kind of got to the point where, you know, I didn't have any intention of leaving my full-time job. I feel like it's kind of this safety net, right? And as creatives, you never know um, where work's going to come from. Um, And so it kind of just got to the point where I really needed to, I guess, invest in myself and realize that I wasn't happy. 
and to realize that um, I guess there was a need out there for my unfiltered mind and my unfiltered application of my work. So, yeah, it just kind of became that point where, um, you know, it came out of nowhere. I didn't expect to kind of leave my full-time job, but then certain certain things happen and you kind of take that leap. So, yeah, I think when you know, you know, though, you kind of just have to follow your energy. I would agree with that. I do a lot of um, like personal career coaching and there's a lot of women who are ready to make that jump, but I think all we're ever looking for is permission Yeah, to do it. I think especially um, for women who are financially independent or unpartnered in the sense that you have to know where your rent check's coming from, you yeah. know what I mean? And so like you said, you stay in these jobs sometimes for too long with that you know, weighing over your head that this is how I get my money and, and my funding. Yeah. But at the same time, as you identified, there was a need for what you were doing. And so the quicker we can step in and yeah. fulfill, you know, yeah. I think. Um, but it's scary. Like when I left my job, you know, I don't really, I don't think I was paid exceptionally, exceptionally well for a publisher, but, you know, I was on decent money. That was what kept me up at night was mm. will I ever earn again? You know yeah. what I mean? But then where I arrived was, well, if I can create work that has meaning, that will have legacy that I can be proud of, then what else matters? Because probably much the same as you, I was getting to a point where my creativity was just a commercial vehicle and it's so soulless. Yeah. You know and what I, I think, mean? I think I was kind of lucky when I transitioned full-time that, you know, we talk about different things trending on social media. And I think when I was kind of shifting to working for myself, we were really embracing, you know, the authentic faces on social media, the, you know, the really genuine, um, I guess, media faces and influences that were kind of real and authentic. I think now we're kind of seeing this shift where that's becoming this label as authentic but what's behind the scenes is very much fabricated so yeah I feel like I'm kind of lucky in the sense that you know that authenticity and vulnerability was really embraced on social media at the time that I transitioned. Mm. That is such an interesting thing for you to bring up because it's almost like the word authentic has become commoditized as well. Mm. And you read any kind of strategy deck or brand proposal and it's all about, you mm. know, we are authentic and original and storytellers and all of this stuff. But then I feel like we as strategists just grab onto those words and then they lose meaning once yeah. again. So I think it's valuable that you've pointed that out because I agree. Like there's so many, I guess – people who have cultivated personal brands based on authenticity that you know are not um, <laughs> yes. and it's, it is a difficult thing to kind of I mean I just kind of like mute or unfollow or I usually just unfollow now but um it is hard to get around when you are creating from a real place of yeah and I feel Do you find like that? yeah and I feel like it's added a lot of pressure like the shameless girls posted something on the Instagram yesterday about how all of these young girls are, you know, dressing up their lounge rooms to create this idea that they're on a private jet. And I was like, well, I spent like oh three hours God. yesterday with a sheet trying to make sure I had like almost a, a studio looking environment for some filming. And I think it like, 
I feel like this idea of something that's Instagrammable is, um, I guess, carrying more weight than, I guess, the very centre or the very core of why we started creating. I think I struggle in the sense that I, you know, I see people around me whose Instagram feeds are beautiful and curated and, you know, I get opportunities to do some really amazing work but if it doesn't visually meet this grid then it's kind of I feel less engaged by it so I feel like it's kind of that that dance between you know using a tool like Instagram to I guess grow your business but then remaining authentic and I guess um, stemming back to your why as to why you're creating and you know why you're doing what you're doing so yeah I feel like it's a it's a big bad world out there, social media. I know. And I part of me wonders whether is that on us as creatives to almost um reimagine and perhaps I don't know if retrain's the right word, but get people used to seeing a little bit of chaos and mess in a grid because I'm the worst for a very tight grid and I don't post things if I'm like, oh, I don't know if it matches. <laughs> And, you know, even I'm kind of ashamed that I've let myself get there, that I've stopped just like uploading for the pure sense of like wanting to share something that I think has meaning. So is that actually on us to reimagine that for people? But then at the same time, we're so trained to follow what is aesthetically beautiful, we limit the amount of people we can reach. So it is a big bad world. I agree with you. It's almost like a lose-lose situation. I think it also comes down to the fact like if you're um, 100% just your only creative outlet is this Instagram feed, right? I feel like you're kind of creating a robotic kind of structure or method whereas I think for those who have, you know, less public creative outlets that are less curated and more kind of just that chaos that we speak about I think that's where you can kind of connect with yourself a little bit more so it is a balance and I reckon it varies from person to person Hmm. um do you ever feel challenged to access your creativity and if so how do you overcome that do you have days where you're just completely blocked yeah I think most creatives do and um I probably don't handle that aspect very well because if I'm honest, working in the commercial environment, I did learn to just churn out a lot of work. Um, You know, you have to work quite quickly from brief to brief. So I feel like that is good in the sense that I learned that skill. But um, I I think creatively, like I said, you follow your energy. And for me, sometimes if I'm not able to produce work, I kind of need to reflect on the brief that I've been given and why Why do I not, why am I unable to create something? And it comes back to this, you know, or feeling in my stomach where I have to kind of reevaluate who I'm working with and I guess what their values are as well. I feel like if I'm aligned to their values, aligned to their thinking and I, I trust and believe what they're, I guess, trying to portray, then I find it quite easy to produce work. I think it's where I'm kind of um, forced to do work um, that I don't believe in is where I kind of take time to think and often, you know, I pull out of those jobs. If I can't deliver something that I don't believe in, then I don't really want to do it. Yeah, it was actually a question I had for you was 
you have worked for some incredible brands and done some incredible work. And I can only assume that the boundaries around commercializing your work are quite complex and sort of ever evolving. Mm. But can you talk to us a little bit more about your process for navigating that? Like, is there questions that you ask yourself or like you've just said, is it really about receiving the brief and do you sign on to the project first and then you get into it and go, actually, this yeah. is not the best representation of me or I'm unaligned and how do you exit those? I think that's a very complex question and I'll, I'll touch on a few different points with it. I think first and foremost, I need to acknowledge that my business is essentially um, giving companies a piece of Aboriginal culture. And I think that is far greater than just myself. So that process that I go through is a lot of kind of um, cultural protocols. It's not even, I don't even go into a creative space early on. You know, I I connect with my dad and my uncles and my elders and, um, you know, my cousins beside me to kind of just, I guess, do a bit of a gut check on it. So how does this feel for us um, from a cultural perspective? Um, what what have they done in the past to kind of make us believe that what they're going to do in the future is going to, you know, be beneficial for, um, or not even beneficial, but not even harmful for our mob, I guess. So that comes into play quite early on. Um, and then I guess from another perspective, there's this idea that um, you're given a brief and then the process, I guess, doesn't actually align to what was originally, I guess, spoken about. So I, in the past, have had some situations where I've been stuck in contracts because, um, you know, I've signed on the dotted line and there's other times where I've had the opportunity to pull out of a, of a project if something has kind of come up. I think for me it's it's a, every brief that comes through is a an internal struggle, I guess. It takes a lot of time to figure out whether I'm going to do the job or not just because, um, you know, it is not just me that I have to think about. It's, you know, my culture. Um, And, yeah, I think it's just it's very complex and I don't think you can kind of, um, for a lot of creatives, you can kind of just do a service card and just put out different fees and things like that, but it's very, it's a time consuming process to make sure you do it right. Mm -hmm. I really value you explaining that actually, because I think there's a lot of people who may even want to engage Aboriginal artists that won't really understand how nuanced the decision-making process Mm. is. I wondered without having the intention of centering yourself in any way, is there any sort of um, heaviness energetically to that responsibility that you feel as an artist, like that you can't actually just essentially freely create or yeah. not at all? I think this is where I probably would get quite vulnerable and say that, you know, on social media it looks like I've had a brilliant year, but what isn't on social media is I guess the the nights where I wake up with anxiety attacks or the days where I don't have the energy to see my friends or you know the days that I'm really snappy at my family because 
Um, they don't understand what's kind of going on in my in my Instagram inbox or my emails. Um, and I think it's we've seen a a year where we've battled fires, we've battled a pandemic, and we've also battled this Black Lives Matter movement. And I don't think I don't think you can truly understand the emotional fatigue we as you know Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are feeling off the back of the Black Lives Matter movement you know we've been amplified in a way that you know we've always been here but um all I guess the expectations are a lot um higher on us and you know we we're kind of I don't know, like, to be completely honest with you, you know, my profile was quite amplified during the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, for a small moment, it kind of gets to your head, right? You're like, wow, all of these people are finally listening to me. Um, And I think it's that moment where you can kind of, you need to come back down to earth a little bit. Um, I think you kind of, you need to realise that it's not all about you as an individual. Um, and there's moments where, you know, I kind of had to take a step back and be really brutally honest on, you know, who I was and what I stood for. And, you know, this, the idea of, you know, brands wanting to reach out and collaborate with you is like amazing, but then you need to really be, I guess, genuine in how you navigate that. Um, you don't, really want to be taken advantage of but it kind of it's this excitement that you feel right when you feel like you're finally being heard um but I think this year yeah it's just it's been a it's been a really tough year and I think um no one really understands how that feels unless you do have the weight of 80,000 years of culture on your shoulders and um, taking that with you and making sure that, you know, there's been a lot of robust conversations around cultural protocols and who can speak for who. And um, I think from a, a westernized sense, there's a lot of, you know, people can see me as someone who has, um, I guess, a, a social media platform and then automatically place this, I guess, idea or label of an authority on me, which in a cultural sense is not not um not how it works and I think it also comes down to the fact that I'm quite palatable um I think my work is quite you know visually appealing and the way that I communicate is um I guess engaging for some people but that doesn't necessarily make me the person to speak on all issues and I think that pressure has really um has really played on my mind a lot um, throughout this year. And I, I think that's something that I still need to get better at. Hmm. Again, I just value you sharing and the um, even the emotional labour that comes with you being on a podcast and discussing this is not lost on me as well. So I do appreciate, especially when speaking publicly, there's a level of, I guess, a feeling of exposure that can come or that that's exposing in a way for you personally as well. So I appreciate it. One of the things that I also value about um, the way you talk about your work is that um, it's sort of like always 
evolving and that it's this continual exploration of your Aboriginality mm. and that every piece you do strengthens your identity. Um, I wondered if we can talk a little bit about fear in that context. Like, did you have any in the beginning? Do you still have it in that? And maybe this kind of leans on what you were just talking about. Is there this feeling of, am I ready? Is my work worthy? Is it mature enough in a way? Or have you not dealt with any of those limiting beliefs? I think I've definitely dealt with limiting beliefs. I don't think the limiting beliefs are connected to my work. I feel like because they are an extension of um, myself and the way that I kind of experience things in life, I feel like people can't take that away from me. I feel like my fear comes from how I'm perceived online. I think I don't want to be kind of, and it's not in the sense that I, I care what people think of me. It's more in the sense that I fear, I guess, the relationships I sign up to from a, a from a professional kind of perspective. Um, I kind of am still navigating um, and I guess I often have conversations with my pop and my dad about just making sure that I'm still connected um, to them and and that fear that you know once they go am I going to know enough to be able to continue our culture and I think my work is a way for me to do that but I think it's it's more that fear about how I carry myself online and you know walk we have this saying where we're walking in two worlds right we're walking in our cultural world and then we're walking in this westernized world and what I think we're discovering now is we're walking in this third world which is social media so our our elders uh, have you know brilliant guidance of how to kind of navigate our culture in this western world but where I find I'm quite lost is how do I navigate that online? How do I have my culture and navigate that online? Because, you know, a lot of my elders aren't on social media, so they don't know how it kind of works, the ins and outs, or how quickly something good can spread or how quickly something that's problematic can spread. And I guess the pressure and this idea of cancel culture online, I think, that's where my fear comes into it. You know, I want to make sure that I'm not an authority on anything, but I also want to make sure that, you know, once I'm kind of this generation where I'm considered an elder and I need to support the the ones that come after me, making sure I have enough experience in that sense to be able to do that. So I think that's where the fear comes in. And I guess I'm assuming that there's no answer to that question around social media I mean where do you go who is that do you believe that it is your generation that will probably create that framework yeah I think it's definitely you know I think it's going to be the connection between people that stand beside me that we're going to pave the way for our young ones we're going to lean on the guidance that we've been given from you know our elders who have come before us but you know, we also need to step up to the plate and, you know, create a safe environment online, an environment that, you know, allows our culture to exist but isn't taken for granted and isn't, I guess, um, commodified too much in a, in a difficult way. Mm-hmm. Um, 
this podcast exists as an exploration of true self and spirituality. Mm-hmm. I wanted to know what does spirituality mean to you? I think spirituality is, you know, a connection to my ancestors. We believe that our ancestors create the world around us. They're, you know, the sound of the leaves in the trees, they're the water flowing through, um, they're the sand on our feet when we kind of connect with salt water. And, you know, I think spirituality is kind of feeling what's going on around you and leaning into it rather than fighting against it. And there's times where, you know, um, a windy day might ruin your plan and I kind of I kind of see that as a well that wasn't the right direction for me anyway so it's kind of really connecting with the environment and how it makes you feel and kind of using that as I guess a sign of what's right and what's wrong it's mm, really beautiful it gave me goosebumps when you were talking <laughs> about um I have a bit of a random question for you, which I don't think you're going to expect. Um, <laughs> okay. it's, a bit, it's a bit personal, so, you know, you you guide me. I'm very entertained by your jokes about singledom and Tinder and stuff <laughs> on Instagram. <laughs> um, you know, I've been married for seven years now with him for ten, so I always think to myself, fuck, I'd be so rubbish on Tinder. Like I have oh, very God. bad chat. Yeah, same. I'm an in-person person. Like I'm a deep conversation person, obviously. Um, same. <laughs> I wondered if you could share a little bit about the challenges when it comes to sort of dating in this era, but then also add COVID to that. Like yeah. I'm assuming maybe 2020 dating hasn't been super high on your list of priorities or maybe it has, but talk to us a little bit about, I guess, this extension of self through the lens of, a very small profile picture and one line (laughs) that sort of like explains who you are to people. I reckon I've had dating apps for probably seven years and in those seven years I don't think I've gone on a single date to tell you the truth. (laughs) I feel feel like I'm, when I say I'm like joke about my singledom, I'm also like probably part of the problem because I don't, I guess, um, what's, I, I just don't, I don't know. I'm not prioritizing that at the moment. Um, And I reckon it probably comes down to like fear as well. Like, I don't know. I just, I, I get this, I don't know, taking it to like a serious kind of note. I get this fear that, you know, I experience all this like prejudice and, you know, online. And I just, I fear ending up with someone who just doesn't get me. And I think I, I take that fear and it just like makes me quite stagnant. Um, So yeah, dating in 2020, I mean, makes no difference for me. It seems like I haven't been dating for like seven years anyway, but. um, Like self-isolation was already happening. Yeah, self-isolation was like me for the last seven years. But no, I think, I think I, you know, I had one relationship, um, quite early on in, I guess, a pivotal time of my life at 21. And, you know, reflecting on it, it was, you know, quite an emotionally abusive relationship and it wasn't the right fit. And I think that kind of, from that moment, I kind of was like, I had no idea who I was. And I was so willing to put that in the hands of someone else for them to kind of figure out who I was. And, you know, they didn't play a role in that, but that's just how I kind of went about life you know at 21 you kind of don't know what you don't know 
Um, and so I think from that moment I pledged to myself that um, I'm not going to get into a relationship with anyone until I am fully comfortable with myself and, you know, my career. And I think what I didn't expect was that every five minutes I'm having having an identity crisis. So I, I don't know what's, what's going to happen. But no. Yeah. Like I, a think I just point. need to shift yeah. it to be open, you know. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting you say that because I had a very similar relationship in my early twenties. I guess I came out of it when I was about twenty one, and I was with him for five years, which mm. is a really long time at that age. Like I feel like I had no bloody right or reason to be so intimate with someone at that age. But I came out of it also going, I would rather be alone. Yeah. Than just with someone like that. Put myself exactly put myself through that for the sake of saying I'm with someone. And I think I got to my fourth or fifth year of, and I used to say I was like stone cold single. I was like, (laughs) there were no hookups. There were no text messages. There was nothing. And you have those very real, like, I guess I created a life inside my mind where I was like, okay, well, so I'll be alone. So that's fine. So I'll travel and I'll have this great career and I'll find happiness in my friends and my family. And I think as a young woman, you go there, don't you? Like you, that's yeah. self-preservation in a way. And so when I met Tony at like 24, 25, must be 25, it was really hard for him to get in because yeah. I was just like, I'm all good, though. I'm all good. And actually the night he approached me at a pub, I, as such a bitch, I said to him, um, like, no thanks. <laughs> I put my hand up and I was like, no, thank you. But who? (laughs) (laughs) The audacity. (laughs) Bless him, he came back twice, spilled a drink on me. Oh. And I was like, you just need to back off, buddy. Um, And anyway, then called the next day and I've been with him ever since. (laughs) That's so cute. I always joke with my friends. I'm like, I'm just waiting for someone to walk down my street and knock on my front door and then, like, tell me they love me. But, you know, I hardly ever, I don't know, I think it's that idea that you have to you have to put yourself out there. You have to invest in something. And I think it just hasn't been my priority, really. Hmm. No, and I think that's... Fair. But if Osh is listening, put me up as the bachelorette. <laughs> and this was the other thing I was laughing about you girls talking about. Bachelorette. only. Yeah, the bachelorette. Yeah. Some, who is going to pick that up? Like that is, I thought that was such a genius idea. I'm like, come on, Channel 10. I know. Brooke and I always laugh about this and it just, we're just waiting for that email to come through, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I will say like on the back of Black Lives Matter, and everything that we've seen play out on social media, I did really think about the responsibility of those shows. Like they've just announced the new Bachelorettes, the two girls, and they look heaven, beautiful, angels, amazing. Mm. But I was a bit like, oh. Yeah. In terms of a response, is this where we are? Like you have an opportunity. Yeah. I also feel like, reality shows like I used to love watching them as a way to switch off right and that's how like Brooke and I became really good friends like I saw on The Bachelor we didn't know each other prior but I feel like even then how they kind of portray or label or I guess cast the women or men of colour on the shows you know um Brooke was 
kind of pitted as having this huge secret that was super like, oh, and it was just that, you know, her sexuality. And I think it's kind of like there always has to be this added story to the people of colour. It's like there's some special alien that's on the show when, you know, we're actually just a representation of a whole group of people and within each of us we have different intersects and I think what the shows do are just kind of, they just, they dramatise issues like this and they do it to kind of, I guess, get ratings but not in a not in a helpful way, you know? I completely agree and I think, yeah, they... I guess perpetuate this ideal that love looks like a really beautiful white woman mm. falling for a Ken doll-like man, you mm. know, that, and they run off and happily ever after and love and yeah. relating in Australia looks very different to that. So it'll be interesting to see maybe next year, like maybe if that was pre-recorded. And yeah. I know they do these shows so far out. I'll be interested and I guess we can only remain hopeful that yeah. there is somebody in those networks that work on the in programming. But I've been talking so much about this on the podcast is getting advice from, you know, people who identify as underrepresented in traditional media um, in order to have true inclusion and representation, it needs to come from the team within yeah. And so if you don't have those people on the team, you're yeah. never going to get the yeah. the outcome. So yeah. anything that's kind of like the first step. I mean, I hate the word inclusion and diversity, kind of that saying, but it kind of you need to have that within your teams to be able to um, portray that out. You know, it starts within, um, like you said. So I think the next few months are going to be interesting to see how different companies and organisations, you know, roll out that idea of inclusion. And it's like intersectional inclusion, you know. It's not just like, yeah. Agree. Um, I have a few more questions for you mm-hmm. before I let you go. Um, you recently purchased land. Yes. Exciting. <laughs> and so it's very exciting. And so I think part of the way I was thinking about this question was, in one sense, it's a massive achievement as a young woman to do that. I think I've lost all hope that I'll ever buy anything. <laughs> um, but then on the flip side, as an Aboriginal woman, having to give a large sum of money for land that belongs to your elders is also, as we know, deeply flawed and not right. Yeah. How have you, how do you even begin to sort of reconcile that? I mean, for me, right, where I've bought land, land, I'm still a guest on this country. This isn't my country. So um, I am in a sense where if I was to buy land on growing, growing country, it'd be, you know, a different feeling. But um, personally, the whole process was interesting. We pay, you know, stamp duty and that can be thousands and thousands of dollars. And, you know, it goes towards the government and that's an easy solution to just, I guess, pay the rent to Aboriginal people. Um, I paid extra money to do a sacred site search on my block of land to make sure that, um, 
you know, there were no sacred sites. There was no, um, I guess, sacred men's business because I wouldn't want to be um, living on something that was traditionally for men. Um, and it came back all clear, but then it also raises that questions of, you know, it's a little bit unclear of who governs that process. So it could just be another, I guess, process where the government is taking money that actually isn't benefiting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But um, I um, have quite a good relationship with some of the local elders and I guess once I once I build my house, I want to invite them in and kind of do a smoking ceremony to kind of um, just know that my intentions on their land are pure. Um, but I think in general that's such a problematic process, right? Um, and, you know, we say it was never seeded and there's simple ways that we can kind of right wrongs from the past but you know, people actually have to want to do that and the government actually has to do that. But currently the systems that are in place are, are benefiting the people at the top. So why would you want to change it if you're the one benefiting? So I think from, I guess, um, the ground up perspective, um, you know, I, I pay um, a lot forward in terms of my business about um to different organisations. So I think there's that idea where you can kind of pay the rent in that sense. But, yeah, super problematic. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking it would have been, I don't know, or an assumption that it would have been quite a dense thing to move through in a way because, like I said, in one sense, as a young independent woman, to mm. actually buy land is like, yeah, whoa, you know, that's so hard to yeah. do. I guess it kind of plays into this idea of like what we as Aboriginal people are trying to achieve is this sense of self-determination and, you know, creating generational wealth for our people that we aren't relying on government systems. So for me it's, you know, it's um, I guess challenging to know that I'm taking land again from, you know, um, Aboriginal people but it's also helpful in knowing that this process will hopefully set myself up that I'm able to, you know, create generational wealth for, you know, people and my mob that come after me in that sense. So, yeah, it's it's, it's not something I'm taking lightly mm. by any means. So my second last question for you is I'd love to know what advice you have for young artists who are trying to establish their name and their work. You know, when you're just <laughs> starting out, it feels like, no one's ever going to give a shit. Yeah. What would you say to, to young artists listening? First up, I'd say think about how you brand yourself or else you're going to get called Sarah your whole life when oh your name's God, actually <laughs> Rachel. I shouldn't, I shouldn't laugh at that, but, like, every time you say it, I'm like, that is very unfortunate. <laughs> I got a new, a new name. It was, like, Sierra, Rachel Sierra this morning. I was like, oh, that's fun. Um, but... On a more serious note, I would say, like, start within. Like, I feel like when I was kind of establishing myself, it was less about what was happening around me and more about what was happening inside me and, you know, how do I express what's happening inside me um, in a creative visual way rather than, you know, this idea of comparison. I think that's where we become a bit stagnant or we become a clone of another person is we have this comparison. So I think, you know, 
we're all different. We're all made up of different intersects. So to be able to, I guess, celebrate what makes you you in a way that's your work and really comes down to what you want to say with your work as well. Um, I think take away all, I guess, the visual outcomes and really uh, focus on the voice that you want to give it is my advice. That's beautiful advice. And I guess just knowing that that will be relevant to someone. Yeah. And that's all that matters, isn't it? Is that we find our work will find the people. It needs to find. need it. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So I ask each of my guests a final question. (laughs) I'm so stressed. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be. Um, Offline exists as an exploration of self. Who are we without the labels? So for you, artist, designer, the social media following, the platform, the brand. Yeah. Who are we when we take all of those things away? And so when you're sitting in your true self, mm-hmm. who are you and what comes up when I ask that question? I'm just a girl standing in front of you on this podcast wanting to be loved. No. <laughs> um, I think I've been so stressed about this, com- like this question. And I think I'm just, uh, you know, a young woman who's, vulnerable still navigating who she is and I think it's the beauty in that process that kind of um you kind of need to stay true in that process and stay present in that process so yeah I don't think I think my true self is ever evolving Mm. I think that's (laughs) such a beautiful answer and like I'm absolutely no authority on this but there's such accuracy to that because there's no destination yeah yeah. You know what I mean? Like what we feel today will be different tomorrow and what we know tomorrow will be different next year. And so I think that's just a lovely answer. <laughs> 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 I really can't thank you enough for taking the time. Should no, I tell people you. how I got your attention in email? Yes. that was. I feel like that's such a funny story <laughs> from my 200 and something unread emails. Unread emails. And I think I said to you on DM, like, you choose the subject line, so you see mine. <laughs> and you said to put Zac Efron sends his love. <laughs> I know. And then he's, like, settled down with his, like, normie girlfriend now in Byron Bay. I'm like, damn it. Totally. I was going to talk to you about that, like, the realness of that situation it's like that yeah. could have been a reality I know like but he's literally up like, the road they say like normie girlfriend and then you go and stalk her Instagram which like I didn't do definitely not but <laughs> much <laughs> but she's like she is the most gorgeous human being you've like ever seen like oh I gave her a good stalk as well she looks very just like introspective and interesting and yeah, yeah, all those things. Ugh. The cool girl. I know the cool girl that like I would love to be, but I'm like the awkward one. Oh, I, I disagree with that. But um, <laughs> well, thank but you. thank you again. I um, I appreciate you taking the time and yeah, just sharing your knowledge and your wisdom with the intention of us learning. Thank you for having me. It's been it's been fun. I always love this podcast, so it's nice to be on it. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode of Offline. Visit getoffline.co to explore more episodes, the online courses I've created to help you succeed consciously, 
and upcoming community events. Follow getoffline.co on Instagram and me. My handle is Alison Larson Rice. Lastly, if you know someone who would benefit from hearing these honest conversations, please share offline with them.